you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I'm your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Not with me is Gareth Hughes, my intrepid co-host in our Brooklyn Bureau. And look, if you've been following us on social or you listened last week, you heard the news. We are shutting it down. (laughs) Everything must go. Do you need wires for mics that you don't fully know how to use? Do you need a subscription to Adobe software? (laughs) Because we got it. That's right. Uh, Gareth and I have announced that we are closing down Just Not Sports after, geez, five plus years and more than 200 plus interviews, nearly 180 episodes. Look, Gareth's going to be back on. We're going to do some more banter. We're going to cover a couple more topics that we want to hit on the way out. But we're also going to introduce a series that I call Exit Interviews. And this is going to be us trying to do two things. One is reconnect with some pivotal and favorite guests that we've had on the show. And two is maybe put a flyer or two out there for folks who have never been on, maybe on our bucket list. Maybe we've always been interested to talk to them, to to invite them to come on. How many of those people join? I don't know. I invited Tiger Woods on, uh, but since he's got a new HBO unauthorized doc about him, I'm guessing that's a hard pass from Tiger. So look, stay tuned in the next few weeks. We're going to try to do a couple more things to give you some entertainment and some fun perspectives as we close down uh, our careers in this space. And we're going to kick that off with our first exit interview with none other than Julie DeCaro. Julie is a senior writer and editor at Deadspin. She is the co-host of Ladies Room, a uh, sports podcast she does with Jane McManus, also a friend of show, huge lover of archaeology. Uh, Shout out to Jane. And Julie's got a new book coming out. It's called Sidelined, Sports, Culture, and Being a Woman in America. And we wanted to have her back on to talk about the new book, Issues that women face, uh, even just today, another high-profile issue of harassment aimed at women in sports media that we're going to break down and use as an impetus to talk about why is she writing this book, why is she talking about these issues, and what it's like to be someone on the front lines of talking about these issues. And we're going to talk about how we linked up. It's been almost five years now since uh, we did More Than Mean, which was our project with Julie DeCaro, Sarah Spain, and of course, the great people over at One Tree Forest Films, Chad Cooper, and everyone that he uh, that he works with. We sat down and made a YouTube video about what would happen if just average dudes got a glimpse, got a look at the types of harassment that women in sports media and really women online writ large uh, face every day. And look, more than mean was a very exciting and yet also very confounding project to be a part of. On the one hand, it did generate just a shit ton of conversation. I mean, we were in the span of a few days, went from literally posting it on a Facebook page with no followers that we just created 
that night, and I uploaded the video to in a hotel in Orlando, uh, to generating millions and millions of views, tons of national media and international media coverage. Um, I think that thing was on like five continents. I mean, Outside the Lines did like a whole episode about it. Of course, I could not be on it. I was in Orlando working. <laughs> and so, uh, okay, well, yeah, that, that, you know, that came and went. So, yeah, in a way, it was exciting. It was different. You know, we, we kind of like went on the road for the next year. We didn't make any money from it. It was all about continuing the conversation about how can we make the situation for women in sports media better, safer, and free of the types of online harassment that they deal with every day. And so confounding was, I don't know, a couple months later, Trump's elected. He's like quite honestly spewing you know, insults and nicknames from Twitter. Uh, you know, we saw social media companies make excuse after excuse to not clamp down on harassment, to not uh, you know, take sides or uh or commit to certain editorial standards if they seemed biased. And so these problems persisted. We also saw the march of progress and questions arise about, you know, why did we do this in a way that centered the men? Why didn't we have more voices in media? And I guess this is a conversation with Julie to kind of close the book on that, to to look back and talk about what that experience was like, but also say it's not about, hey, we tried this one time to fix this thing. It's about these problems are persistent. And just because you looked at a video a while back, just because you you know said the right thing today online or did the right thing for a moment in time doesn't mean that the people that you're aiming that generosity toward their life is getting any better, that, that their issues are going away, that they're they're getting the, the the change, the systemic change that they need. These are topics we've talked about a lot in a lot of different contexts on this show over the years. We've talked about it with race. We've talked about it with gender. We've talked about it with equality. We've talked about it with uh, people's ability to use their voice in sports on their terms. And I just thought it would be great. There's no way to, to close the book on Just Not Sports without talking to Julie about not just where we were with her, how we got introduced to her through that project, but about how she has marched forward and how she and so many other women continue to fight these same battles uh, over and over again and to ask the right questions. What can we do to be allies? What can we do to actually fix this um, and make things better, not just for future generations, but for here, today, and now? So I really appreciate Julie coming back on. There's no way to to talk about the impact that, that she and Sarah Spain had on on the on this program and on this this platform that we developed. And I definitely want you to go listen to her podcast, Ladies Room, read her on Deadspin, and buy her book, damn it, Sidelined. It's coming out this March. So thank you for Julie for coming back on. And now let's get to the interview. The first time you came on this podcast, we literally sat you in front of men who read awful stuff to your face. The second <laughs> time you came on this podcast, we talked about Chernobyl. Am I the That's most right. depressing podcast in your life by far? No, it's like the best. Nobody wanted to talk about Chernobyl. Everybody's like, I don't want to watch that. It's depressing. I'm like, it's so good. I was thrilled to talk about Chernobyl. Oh, it was like the song of my summer whenever it came out. I mean, pre-pandemic, it feels like an entirely oh, different world. I know, right? 
And also, when we did the um, the first time I was on the podcast, when you had guys say mean things to me, I'm pretty sure you also provided beer and pizza, if I'm recalling correctly. So it all even out. We did. We did. Shout out to uh, Chad Cooper for paying for that pizza. Yeah. Uh, and Vince, uh, who 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 let me who 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 like triple parked in front of Peace in uh, wherever we were, Bucktown Wicker Park, whatever that place was, which is like the worst place to try and pick up a pizza. So anyway. Yeah, it's true. All right, so. There's a lot we're going to cover with you. Um, we're going to talk about your new book. We're going to talk about the work we've done together. I had to start with the depressingly predictable story of the day, which was the Mets GM, now former Mets GM, uh, Jared Porter, I think is his name. Yeah. Revelations that he had been sexually harassing a member of the media, uh, a quick firing, a, a, a very open and shut case with plenty of receipts and credible reporting from a major news outlet that certainly once again sparks people rushing to his defense for some reason. And so I, I wanted to start there with you in terms of is it what do, what do we writ large get wrong about talking about situations like this, especially given your experience uh, as a woman in sports media and as someone who has chronicled uh, time and time again how these uh, firestorms start after what are, you know, at least from my perspective, to be pretty egregious behavior being uh, or, or meeting consequences? God, where do I even start with that one, Brad? Um, I think it starts with, and here's this, here's a perfect example. I don't think men understand the degree to which women are often afraid of men. So mm. when they were renovating Prudential Plaza, and I had to go, um, they were renovating our floor and they had the men's bathroom open, but not the women's bathroom. So we have supposed to go like up to the 11th floor. Well, my show's on from 10 to midnight or used to be on from 10 to midnight. So I'm not going up to a floor that's completely empty to use the bathroom at 11 o'clock. And the guys that I worked with were just like, why wouldn't you go up there? Are you afraid of ghosts or something? And I was like, no, I'm afraid of men. And like women are constantly calculating their safety in almost every situation where you're alone. And so I think it starts there. And, and that, that is something that men just don't have to do. They don't have to move through the world the same way that women do. And then I think that, you know, when it comes to stuff like the sexual harassment that we saw today, um, you know, I mean, it, it, no matter how many laws we have on the books, no matter, you know, um, sexual harassment, sexual discrimination laws, no matter the Me Too movement. The fact is there are so few women in this industry still that there is no one for you to go to. Um, I mean, certainly I've gone to bosses about this kind of thing. Every woman I know who works in this industry has gone to bosses for this kind of thing. And you eventually just stop because you, you realize that it's hurting your career and it's hurting your reputation and it's hurting your access with the club and it's hurting your access to the players. And um, eventually you just move on uh, or move away or you know find a different job or you quit or you just keep it silent for so many years. Um, I was talking to a woman who recently left a very high profile media job and she said, I, she's like, why did I keep quiet for so many years? And I think we all have that question about, you know, why did we keep quiet for so many years about this stuff? And it's because you want to fit in. You don't want to be the difficult person. You don't want to be a troublemaker. You want people to like you. And um, it's just really difficult um, with guys like Jared Porter in the world. And there's a lot of them to move through the world in a confident, safe way where you can both be happy with yourself and with your job. One of the things I advise people to do all the time 
is follow more voices that are different than yours in social media. <laughs> and yeah. we talk about breaking the bubble, but here's a very specific reason why. I saw a number of women online say, stop putting this through the context of him just hitting on her and going too far. Mm -hmm. This is about power. This is about intimidation. He is harassing her on purpose for the thrill of it. And it's it was such a stark reminder that we constantly need to challenge our own perspectives. Even well-meaning people who consider themselves allies are probably not seeing it exactly through the, the, the same framework that women are. I thought that was a very powerful, eye-opening moment for me, again, as someone who is more than willing to get vulnerable about my own limitations and what else I need to open my eyes to. Can, but can you break that down for our listeners in terms of, I saw a lot of chatter today about, oh, this is like, oh, I w would you ever send something like this? And why do, do any, does any guy ever think that works? But yet that was a good reminder that this is the wrong conversation to be having about what is obviously open and aggressive harassment of someone uh, as a power dynamic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting that this woman moved here to cover Major League Baseball. She didn't have a great grasp of the English language, she says. Um, and 60 texts, 62 texts. And I mean, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I just think in general, women don't have that kind of confidence when it comes to like dating to like send some guy 60 unanswered texts, <laughs> but men do. And, um, you know, like I said today, I get, I, I would suspect that somewhere along the line, he started to become angry and that's why he kept going. Right. Um, and then immediately she says, oh my God, stop. Now it's in writing that she wants him to stop. So now he's got to stop. But up until that point, he was taking all the leeway he could. And, you know, I said today, I get dick pics. On a, I used to get them, like, God, like weekly. Thank God it's not that frequent anymore. But I still get them pretty regularly. And I get them from men who hate me, not from guys who are flirting with me. Because it is a power thing. It's a, um, it's a sense of control. It's look what I can do to you. It's inflicting violence and traumatization on someone via the Internet. And I know that there's guys that'll say like, oh my God, how can looking at someone's dick like traumatize you? But it, when you're not expecting it and you don't want it, and it's just suddenly there in your social media or in your email inbox or whatever, it is traumatizing and you feel violated. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think this is about him just being awkward. I mean, I had a bunch of guys today saying, well, this is five years ago. Why does she have to bring it up now? And the answer is because she feels safe enough to bring it up now. She's got enough distance and she's not dependent on those same people anymore. And she's in a place where she feels secure. But I mean, I've, I have a notebook where I've written down tons of stuff over the years and I pulled it all back out when I was writing this book um, to, to, to remember some of it. And I was sort of in the same place. I was like, God, why was I so quiet about so much of this stuff? And you know, the thing that really sucks. And, and one woman said this to me recently that the first person through the wall is just the bloodiest and, and I know that a lot of women too, like if you do speak up about this stuff, you suffer for it. Like you're sort of ostracized, like you get called difficult and the team doesn't want to work with you anymore because you're causing problems. But then when the next woman comes in, things are different. And it's great that it's different, but we're really not providing women with any incentive to be the first one to speak out. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, and look, you're, you mentioned your book, Sidelined Sports Culture and Being a Woman in America. When does it come out again? It comes out March 16th. I need reading material all the time, Julie. I have not left my house basically <laughs> in, what is this, oh. almost a year now? Um, but look, it, 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 again, this, this incident today highlights the urgency that we need to continue this conversation. So can you talk to me about, 
you know, what are the areas that you're covering in this book and how much are you veering beyond your own experience within sports and talking about broader cultural issues for women? Well, the whole book, I think, is about broader cultural issues. And when I was pitching this book around, like all these people kept being like, oh, it sounds great, but I don't, we don't really do sports books. And I kept being like, it's not a sports book. <laughs> but I just, I, I mean, I think it's about all the issues that women face in society. It's about harassment. It's about harassment at work. It's about crying at work. It's about the way that women manage their anger. It's about um, domestic violence. It's about, uh, you know, the way that women look at each other as competition rather than allies. But it all goes through the lens of sports. So it's got a bunch of my stories in it. It's got a bunch of stories from other women, all names you'll recognize. Um, because I, because I, if it's just from me, then all these guys are going to roll their eyes and be like, oh, God, here goes to Carol again, complaining about everything. So I wanted to bring in a bunch of women from different platforms, different types of media. Some are athletes, some are, you know, big time sports media people to sort of show that we all have these same experiences and they're not limited to sports. They're limited. I mean, this is, this is what it's like being a woman in America. So, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, and I, I suspect it's because it is still very much a, a frat house, old boys, boys club network in sports media. And there are so few women that it, it's, um, you know, it's like America on masculine, everything that happens in America that is bad. It happens on steroids to women in sports. So it, it does go, you know, into broader issues, but we sort of use sports as the entree into all those issues. And I'm glad you brought up what I think is a central tension that you must face every day, which is this is an issue that you've talked about readily, that when you say, oh, there goes Julie DeCaro again talking about this, well, yeah, because this is a continual issue. Look at today. <laughs> Look at all the other incidents that are constantly happening. Just from you, from a personal perspective, what's it like as someone who, who critiques an issue, an issue that you have a personal resonance to and consistently has to answer for how often or how much you're willing to actually put yourself out there and do that? I, I feel like that must be a an incredibly difficult and frustrating situation to find yourself in justifying talking about what is what obviously is a pervasive issue in this industry and something you have to deal with daily and then get online and people being like, well, there you go again. Yeah, it's, I mean, look, nobody wants to be, I and mean, Sarah and I said this like after more than mean came out, right? Like nobody wants to go viral for this. I mean, if I'm going to go viral for something, I want to go viral for like Woodward and Bernstein and some like great story or something, you know, like I would not take because... being the water bottle flipper guy from that talent show. That would be right. Like... <laughs> right. Or like the dreams guy on the skateboard. Like, why yeah. can't I be that guy? <laughs> but um, I, it's really frustrating. And I second guess myself all the time. Um, there's plenty of days when I'm, you know, my my mantra the past couple of months has been, you know, what? you don't have to comment on everything. Like Sometimes it's OK. Um, even when I do that, I have people coming and being like, oh, so you're not going to comment on this. You commented on this. You're not going to say anything about this. And then I also have people sending to me all the time, like horrible examples of women being mistreated and wanting me to be the one to speak out about it. And then on top of that, there's also all these women in the industry who are like, oh my God, I'm so glad that you said that. Why, I wish I could say that. I don't, I'm not brave enough, but I'm like watching their career, like take off, you know? <laughs> Um, mostly because a lot of times because they're not, they don't say things and because they play the game and they don't, you know, say the things that you're not supposed to say. Um, so yeah, it's frustrating a lot of times and it's frustrating that, especially when I had my, my job at, uh, the score that people would be like, oh my God, you, you have this dream job. Can you just shut up and stop bitching about it? 
And, you know, I don't know if there's a job in the world that doesn't feel like a job if you do it for long enough. Um, and, and, you know, sports is, sports media is hard work and having a radio show is hard work. And there's a lot of times you fall on your face and you feel stupid and bad things happen and you get sick to your stomach about it. And, um, and then to have people be like, you know, on top of all that, you're not allowed to talk about this basically because I'm tired of hearing it from you. Um, it, it's frustrating. And, uh, you know, there's, it seems to be a relatively small group of women that are always the ones speaking out. And I'm just sort of hoping that the generation coming behind us, um, I guess, is a little bit more cohesive. They're a little bit more numerous and then they feel a little bit more free to speak out because it is hard to, you know, it, it's funny because um, my part, my podcast partner, Jane McManus, when she was at ESPN, you know, we were DMing a long time ago about how we always wind up writing about domestic violence and athletes and how we really got into this because we just wanted to cover sports and we didn't really want to talk about all this stuff, but nobody talks about it. So you feel like someone has to say something. And Jane said, you know, someone said to me recently, you're not going to last long in this industry if you keep doing this, if you keep being the one to speak out. And sure enough, like three months later, she was out at ESPN. Um, I was out at the score and it was my out for the score was later, but she's right. I mean that, you know, you do become looked at like the difficult person and your career suffers and you watch other people um, who don't speak out sort of on this upward trajectory because they make the men comfortable and uh, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And I think for me, a thing has really become not being bitter about it and just realizing that my path is different from other people's paths. Yeah, by the way, that podcast is Ladies Room for our listeners. And uh, Jane, a huge fan of ancient historical uh, archaeological dig sites, uh, yeah. which she described on this show. Uh, look, I, I want to talk about more than me in a second. I want to first say this. I'm a PR flunky by trade. So I know you're about to get booked on endless interviews where you have to answer really depressing questions about the <laughs> challenging subjects you address in your book over and over Is that and over true? again. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're going to, it's the same ones are going to come over and over. So here's my, here's my, oh. my curveball, my positive question. Finishing okay. a book has to be the coolest moment in the world. What did you do when you finished <laughs> the book to celebrate? Did you just like run in the street? Did you like douse yourself with champagne like you'd won the World Series? Like, what did you do the moment no, it was done? No, be because it's not like you're ever really finished. Like, you don't know really when you're finished with it. So, like, I, I there's, like, three different posts where I'm like, I'm done with the book, and I'm posting, like, a glass of wine or whatever. But then it's always like, okay, now it's time for edits, and then your edits come back, like, five <laughs> or six times, and you keep having to, like, do more stuff. So, like, every time I was, like, celebrating being done with the book, I was never actually done. And then when the day that it was, like, the last time I touched it, I didn't know it was the last time I touched it. I figured it was coming back again. So I didn't do anything. I probably watched Ancient Aliens and, like, laid on my bed or yeah, something. Yeah, you know what? We'll take it. Um <laughs> Look, congrats on that. It's so awesome to see. It's so awesome to see you continually talking about these issues and and, and addressing them openly. I, you guys look, are in the book. We we are no way. Yeah, you are. All right. Yes. Uh, you ready for a libel suit, a defamation, whatever? You know, we'll, we'll, yes, for sure. <laughs> look, okay. So five five years ago, we we first partnered on yep. a video that you know I'm proud to say <laughs> ended online harassment for women. We did it. It's just over. Um, right. No. Uh, and, and you know what? That, that's where I want to start, Julie, on this, because it's been incredibly weird to 
pour a lot of effort into a situation and then almost see it. I don't want to say get worse, but like yeah. the Trump era ushered in like a new normalization for the way people talk to each other online. Yeah, it's not great. What was this whole last few years like for you as you and Sarah uh, had really become two of the most you know, obviously prominent, you had already you know, spoken out about this issue long before I ever uh, came to you. So we're not taking credit for your own journey here. But as you as you all have become so synonymous with this idea of online harassment, and yet year after year, there were consistent, persistent issues with it that were not being addressed by platforms, by government officials, by a lot of people in power. What was that like to process? And, and, and I, I guess just like, how frustrating was it to see a lack of immediate change um, when we all knew that what the answers probably were. Yeah, you know, immediately after it came out, I felt really good for like, there was a good like four month stretch where I was like, I've, I've said my piece, I got it out there, a lot of people saw it and I feel good about it. And then it just, you know, is it just kept going and going and going and it ramped up because then I had more followers and I was more visible. And more guys were like joining the the trolling clubs that basically have me as their hobby. Um, it started sort of feeling again, like really frustrating and like no one was listening. And, you know, even now, like if I post something on Twitter about harassment, it'll get like a couple likes and a couple retweets, but it doesn't have nearly the impact it used to when I would speak out about it because people are just tired of hearing it. And it's so funny because I was talking to Anita Sarkeesian, who was one of the Gamergate victims, and she said that, you know, people ask her all the time, like, it's better, right? And they just have this hope in their eyes, like they want you to tell them it's better. And the truth is, it's really not better, but people are tired of hearing about it. So I think I've gotten to a point where I have to really pick my moments when I'm going to say something. And even then, it, it just doesn't have the impact. I think people have become sort of numb to it. Do you look back on that project and and view it differently? And if so, how so? Have you, no, I look back on it with so much joy and love and so grateful that it brought you guys into my life. Um, you know, it's funny. When I got that random email from you, I remember sitting downstairs in my living room <laughs> and I was like, oh, who is this guy? And then I had such a bad day with trolls that day. I was like, sure. Why not? I'll go meet you and a bunch of random guys in a warehouse in Ukrainian village or whatever it was that we were, you know, and like <laughs> it was such a like random thing to do. And I remember Brad being like, do you want us to to make sure that you do you want us to have like a professional makeup person there? And I was like, ah, no, I'll just come after work. So you know, like whatever, 14 million views later or whatever it's gotten. <laughs> I kind of wish I'd gone back with the makeup. But no, I mean, it was such a great experience. It, um, it you know, I think one of the things that Sarah and I sort of came to over the course of like this little whirlwind world tour we did about it was that I think the reason it, it made an impact with people is because the men were upset and they saw men being upset. They're always like, did those guys know, like, did they know you were going to do that to them? Like, that was kind of mean. Are they okay? You know? And I was like, yes, they're fine. <laughs> like, they don't have right. people threatening to rape them all the time. So, I mean, the, I think the, the lesson that we sort of took away from it is that when that people are much more comfortable with men being or much more comfortable with women being upset than they are with men being upset. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's still the most other than the um, you know, we reached out to a number of women of color to be part of it. I, I wish we'd had 
a broader diversity, and I, I wish I just kept trying and, and held back publishing. I, I think I've learned a lot of lessons over the years of just like, it's not enough to say, well, I tried. It's like, well, keep being persistent, keep going the extra mile. Uh, it, it, same way with, it was almost like the end of that first year of us going around, talking about it, trying to extend the life of it so we could keep the conversation going about the issue, not the project. We didn't make any money off the project. It was like, I remember at, by the end being like, man, more people are talking about these dudes than like the women involved. And I wish <laughs> we had found a different framework. But I think what I took away was you have to be able to put something out there and be willing to roll with the criticism that will emerge later. That's progress. And and you have to own it. And all you have to do is continue to be better, you know, try better the next time. Don't just be one of those people that's like, well, I made this one thing this one time and now I'm the expert in this thing. It was more like, hey, we started a conversation that we got the fuck out of the way so other people could continue the conversation because they're much more qualified than us and they're women and they're talking to you about it. And I do wonder, like, do people talk to you now about criticisms with with what we did or 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 different vantage points that you're like, God, I wish we had thought of that. And and how do you deal with that kind of rolling view of, uh, uh, of hindsight that always follows a project like this? I don't think anyone has said anything like that to me. Um, maybe they've said it behind my back. I don't know. Um, but um, no, I mean, I think that, you know, looking back, if you're a white person, I, I mean, I think that looking back on your life, you wish that you had been more inclusive and that there was more diversity right. in your friends and your coworkers in every aspect of your life. Like I'm finally, and it's a lot of it is due to Twitter. I'm finally to a point in my life where I have, I feel like a pretty diverse community around me. But I mean, that's the great thing about Twitter is that it allows you to hear from people and connect with people that you might not otherwise know. And I think that's really how you change minds. You know, I mean, my views on everything from race to LGBTQ community to Islamophobia to everything is completely different than it was five years ago. And I thought I was super liberal then, you know, and, and I think hearing all these different viewpoints from people is what allows you to evolve as a person. Um, like I said, I, no one said anything like that to me. I, of course, I'm, I'm sure if we sat down and had six months to brainstorm it and workshop it again, sure, maybe we could come up with something better. But I, I think the impact that it had is, is a testament to, you know, that it was very effective. And, and I mean, my parents found out about because they saw it on CBS Evening News. <laughs> I was taking a nap. I mean, <laughs> so it, it's, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of it. I will always be proud to be associated with that project and with you guys. What do you want to say to the men who consider themselves allies? Because I think they have a lot of opinions on what they should do, but I think the very first thing they can do is listen a little bit more. So I think when you, I think whether you're talking about, you know, race or, um, you know, sexual orientation or gender or, or whatever, it's, it's the same thing, right? It's not enough to just be sympathetic and consider yourself to be like an ally. You have to be an active ally. So when it comes, first of all, I mean, this art, this guy, Damon Young, I think his name is um, over at The Root. I don't know if he's still at The Root. He wrote this terrific piece several years ago um, about how often men don't believe women. And it's just like a, just like an instinct, like men have just been socialized to like when women tell them something to not believe it until you have it verified by another source. So I think sort of examining everyone's own internal biases is the first thing. But, you know, I was saying today, like, I, you know, stuff would happen to me at my old job and I would have so many guys be like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. But then that's it. Nobody said, hey, you need to come forward about this. And here's four of us and we will all go with you to management and say this is not OK. 
Um, nobody said, you know, this is what all the guys are talking about on the Whisper Network that you're not part of. Um, you know, stuff like that. Like that is the kind of allyship that women need. Um, I need to know what's being said behind my back. I need you to defend me when I'm not there. I need you to go to the boss and say, hey, I know Julie came and talked to you about this and that nothing has happened and that is not okay with me. Um, you know, and in sports media, there are very few guys who are willing to stick their neck out like that because everyone's always looking over their shoulder for who's coming up behind them and who's going to take their job. So it, it's especially competitive. And, and I think that, you know, in this industry, it's, it's much more difficult for guys to sort of summon the courage to do that. But but that's really what women need. I mean, you know, telling us on Twitter, retweeting something and saying threat or retweeting it and saying this is horrible. That's not the same thing. Tweeting at someone's boss and saying, Julie DeCarroll said this happened on Twitter. What is being done about it? That's allyship. And, and that's the kind of stuff that we really don't see much from men, I think. All, everything you and Sarah and everybody else who's, who's been on this podcast, who's talked about the issues that women face in sports and culture broadly has been really formative for me. I, you know, I just want to thank you for coming back on because it'd be an understatement of the century to say you've been a consequential guest in this show. I think the, the bigger consequence you've played are things like that email that I sent that you replied. I had like a, it's like a literally like a Bill Simmons column worth of an email uh, that's like you reply, let's do it. No, not knowing anything. I've got it framed in my office. Like this year was oh. the first year I showed the video to my daughter. My wife was not happy. Cause she's like, what are you showing to our daughter? But I explained like, these are women that know this is wrong. And like, they wanted to, to, to tell that story. I just, uh, there are a lot of us out here who appreciate everything people like yourself or women like yourself are doing to raise awareness for this issue, for these issues. But more than that, that you're just continuing to get out there and talk about sports despite these issues too. It's like, it's not just, Oh, you're, I think there's a mis misconception that like, Oh, you're, you're some careerist that's going to make this your brand. That bullshit. Like you're out there talking about sports, talking about everything else, talking about the Cubs and the bears, despite all this stuff, you're like grinding and doing the work too. And I've, I've been very moved by that. And I, I just wanted to, before we shut down shop, just invite you on one more time so we could, hear from you again, promote the hell out of your book, which I hope everyone buys. And thank you immensely for taking a chance on some random weirdos that uh, took you to, uh, uh, you know, a, a studio with, with no makeup to, to hurl threats at you. <laughs> you guys, I, I'm so glad that I got that email. I'm so glad that I responded to it the way I did. Um, it, it was a seminal moment in my life. And Part of the reason that it was possible was because I knew that you guys were behind Sarah and me. I knew that we had real, true allies. Um, and, you know, I, I will remember this experience for the rest of my life with nothing but joy and happiness, especially when I think about that epic duet of Jackson that, that Gareth and I did at karaoke afterwards. <laughs> I can't believe we don't have that on tape. Uh, it should be everywhere. That karaoke, I barely made my flight. It was a long <laughs> night after the Peabody's, but we will, we'll take it. <laughs> it was, it was a great night. Um, no, I mean, it was, it, you know, that video changed my life and it, I think it gave me more courage than I would have had otherwise. So I am, I am truly grateful for you guys, each well, and every one of you. Tell everyone to go read your, your, your big column before the video where you put yourself out there without a bunch of dudes. Uh, cause that was a lot braver to me <laughs> and it's something I, I've never forgotten about as well. Like I said, we, 
We all, you, you were the one who told your story. We just put a camera at it. Uh, so pointed a camera at it. So, uh, you know, we always appreciate that. Oh, anyway, you guys, you're the best. 